You're listening to Endeavor Against Extremism, brought to you by The Clarion Project. I'm your host, Shireen Kadosi. I've always felt that the power of stories could never be underestimated. Stories are, are the most human thing about us, and if we can understand our crises at this point, using a framework of stories and narratives by speaking to real people, by understanding the real conversations that really should be happening at this hour that aren't always brought to you, then we can perhaps endeavor to understand our world today and our place in it, as well as learn the skills to build the world that we want so that we don't have to go the route of other groups of people who have felt that in times of extreme stress and duress, the only way to survive was to become more extreme. Politics that we have now, it is so polarizing and people are at each other's throats and they're not listening to each other. And that's that's a big problem that we have today. And I mean, that's, the, you know, spending 27 years in the movement, I mean, that was that those were the goals that we had as as far right extremists was to get everybody at each other's throats. I'm Jeff Scoop. I'm the former national leader of the National Socialist Movement. I was involved in white nationalism and extremism for about 27 years, 25 of those years in the leadership position of the largest Nazi organization in the United States. Um, I'm out. I have left the movement um, just over a year ago. And, um, you know, I'm currently working to counter violent extremism and uh, consult about extremism and and, uh, help other people leave radical extremism. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been really eager to talk to you because I've been exploring some of the ideas that you have. And I think they're so right on the pulse of where we are today. You tweeted today on Twitter, of course, um, about the conspiracy theories around the coronavirus pandemic. And you said, conspiracy theories and paranoia permeate extremist mindsets and thought patterns. Many believe exploiting COVID-2019 or COVID-19 will accelerate societal collapse via a race war or boogaloo. What does that mean for folks who don't know what boogaloo means? Well, boogaloo is a term that that originally it came from, you know, the 60s hippie time. But uh, what it means today is basically it's it's the same as race war. And that's why I included both of those. It's like a societal collapse or the, the collapse of the system, which uh, people in the movement or in the in the far right, you know, believe that things will collapse into into a boogaloo or race war type of situation. So they believe that if society collapses, if the government collapses, that sort of thing, that rioting will start. And uh, basically, um, from that mindset, those people that are involved in the movement believe they're going to rise and be the saviors or the answer, you know, for America or whatever country um, they're involved in. But uh, that's basically the the short version of that. In an interview with with Stephen Knight, I believe, uh, of the Godless Spellchecker podcast, you talked about the messaging you were indoctrinated with while in the National Socialist Party. You said, when all you're hearing is this information inside an echo chamber or bubble, in some ways it's like a cult. That, unquote, and that to me sounds a lot like what American politics has become. And I feel like with what it's becoming, it, it amplifies sort of this, this climactic war that a lot of extremists want. 
do you feel that as a country we're becoming more radicalized? Absolutely. I mean, on on so many levels right now, I mean, you've got where the Democrats and the Republicans, I mean, there's no dialogue anymore. Basically, everyone's screaming at each other. Everyone thinks they're right. And if someone disagrees with somebody else, um, they'll, you know, I've, I've seen cases of where people I know are, are shouting at each other going, you know, if you're going to be a Democrat or you're going to be a Republican, you should just die. And, and this just horrible type of language. And these are people that even just a couple years ago, in some cases, were not radical. But it's the politics of the modern day politics that we have now. It is so polarizing and people are at each other's throats and they're not listening to each other. And that's that's a big problem that we have today. And I mean, that's, the you know, spending 27 years in the movement. I mean, that was that those were the goals that we had as as far right extremists was to get everybody at each other's throats in the country. So in that sense, the movement could rise up. So it's it's exactly what the far right or any extreme movement want. They want society to break down. They want uh, things to get radical and everybody to be at each other's throats and, uh, you know, uh, go back and answer what you were asking a little bit there earlier um, about the movement being like a cult. When I was there, when I was involved in the movement for all those years, I didn't like that terminology. I always thought uh, different girls I would bring around would say, Jeff, you know, this is like a cult. This is, this is um, really cult-like and it would get me angry when I'd hear it, you know, because I was like, no, that's not true. I didn't see it. You don't really see that until you're out because you are in that bubble. You are in that echo echo chamber. Everyone you know is inside the bubble. Everyone, um, you if you're getting opinions from other people, everyone has that same ideology, the same feedback, the same, um, you know, uh, worldview in so many different ways. That's all you're hearing when you're involved in groups like that. So your mindset is very, very narrow. And that's how you see the world. And if you step outside of the bubble, you know, the people that are in the bubble or in the echo chamber are pulling you back in because they're going, no, no, you're not seeing it. Look, this is this. It's this way. And it's very easy to stay stuck in that mindset when that's when that's all you're hearing. It's just like a, a propaganda machine, whether you were not. Uh, North Korea in a communist country and all you're hearing is how wonderful the great leader is or the dear leader and that's that's all you hear so after a while you tend to believe it I feel like when you get from radical which is and and please correct me if you if you think differently the idea that there is only a black and white narrative things are very binary and it ha- the world has to be filtered through one lens that radical final viewpoint when you go from radical to extreme, which is enacting violence to use uh, to really to solidify that radical viewpoint, I feel like the middle sort of connective tissue between those two is uh, violence or, or psychological violence before you get to physical violence of extremism. And so when I see what's going on with the, the echo chambers, the bubbles, the cult-like allegiance to an idea, what I also see is a lot of psychological violence and and i feel like that is going to precede the next step which a lot of people are saying america's headed for a second civil war when we look at the coronavirus right now when we look at 
the stimulus package that just came out, for example, and um, really lack of a better phrase, the American public has been shafted in terms of what they're going to get. And what I, what I sense that people are seeing is a lot of psychological and now economic violence towards the average American individual. When we talk about the bugaloo, when we talk about going to an extreme race war or just a war of some sort, some sort of accelerationism, it seems to me that, like you were saying, it's kind of already here. It seems to me like a lot of Americans are already wanting to go to war with the system or will be in the next couple of weeks when people can't pay their rent or afford food. So if the system is broken or the system is breaking, how do we reconcile that collective reality where people are sort of headed towards with the fact that this is exactly what extremists want. It is exactly what they want. And this is, and the, the only way to solve that is, first of all, all of the, uh, what, you know, we would see as probably the moderate uh, political parties, the mainstream parties, the Democrats, the Republicans, all these, these different people that are all at each other's throats, they have to come together. We have to come together, not just as the United States, but as the world in general. We have to look at this as <clears throat> exactly what it is. It's a pandemic, and it's something that we have to get under control. They shouldn't. The government should not be withholding respirators. You should not have. Um, there was something with a doctor on the television the other night where he was talking about he spent $18,000 of his own money to get supplies that he needed to care for people. And he said there was whole a whole warehouse full of these things and that the people just, you know, marked everything up like 800 percent, you know, price gouging people. And um, then you have, in, you know, even on an individual level where people are hoarding things and you can't go to the store and find toilet paper or fresh meat or things like that. So um, this is playing into the I would call it like a nightmare scenario now. But uh, when I was part of the movement, this is exactly you know, the type of thing, you know, we didn't necessarily in the movement predict that it would be a bioweapon or a virus or, or, um, you know, whatever this uh, exactly is. But we did predict that there would be a societal breakdown. And that's sort of a cue for a lot of people that are in the movement to accelerate things. Um, you just saw a case uh, just this week, where there was a guy that uh, apparently or um, allegedly, was a member of the organization that I was part of. And uh, he was planning, um, according to the FBI, to blow up a hospital with a car bomb. You know, these are the type of things, <clears throat> you know, worst case scenarios that um, people in these radical organizations are hoping for. And if, if enough of that sort of thing starts kicking off or there's riots in some of the major cities you know, things like that. These are cues where a lot of people are going to um, panic or do things that they shouldn't be doing. I, I think in a lot of times in a crisis is like what we're facing now. It brings out the very best in some people and it brings out the absolute worst in others. And uh, um, if the government wants to stop things like this from happening, they've got to start having positive dialogue between each other and not going, well, he's a Republican or he's a Democrat or he's this party or she's this party or this is a Chinese virus or, or that sort of thing, but helping everyone. You know, right now we shouldn't be doing things like sanctioning Iran 
when the people there are dying and they need medical help or saying this is all China's fault when China's trying to, uh, you know, bring out tests and things like that, that, that can everybody in all the countries of the world, all the world leaders need to come together right now before it's too late. It would seem to me that to play devil's advocate, the extremists in a sense were right that the system's broken, things aren't going to last. And in, in that sense, they've been prophets of sort of a coming breakdown. However, extremists at large tend to focus on supremacism, whether it's race supremacism with uh, Muslims, it's Islamists, it's Islam, uh, Muslim supremacism with Islamists, it's theological uh, when it's uh, along the lines of uh, militant groups. Do you think the extremist message now that they're seeing that, you know, sort of they've been right about certain things in terms of uh, the breakdown of society. Do you think their message is going to adapt to the times and move beyond just this hyper obsession with race and move into something different? Well, I mean, we, you know, when I say we, I'm talking about the past tense of when I was involved in that. Right. And I, I want to make that clear to the listeners. Sometimes when I discuss these things, People aren't really listening, and when they hear me say we, they think I'm talking present tense, even though they know I'm not I'm not speaking that way. But I, I want to preface that and, and <clears throat> you know, put it out there um, just to clarify it for anybody that's not really truly listening and um, is, is uh, uh, using confirmation bias and hearing what they want to hear. But um, regarding, regarding that scenario, I mean, even a broken clock is right twice – twice a day. So there is things that these extremist movements have predicted or have said that do come true, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's accurate, but that doesn't mean everything that they're saying is accurate and everything that they're promoting is, is going to come true either. And they do, uh, as a propagandist from that, you know, from that world, I mean, we would pick up on any kind of disaster or or any type of thing. I mean, uh, the organization I was part of, NSM, I mean, we got heavily involved in, um, you know, illegal immigration and did patrols in Arizona and California and things of that nature. And that was a big hot button issue in the country. And we were bringing in recruits and, and people to the organization that we wouldn't have never seen before that were coming to us saying that we were the only ones saying anything about illegal immigration, that we're really doing anything about it. So um, here, those same type of tactics, um, people in the movement, and I'm, I'll just you know predict it or guess, because, uh, but they'll probably say, look, we were telling you about this all along. And the typical scapegoat for the far right, anyways, is always the Jews. So mm -hmm. the Jews are behind everything from their from their mindset. And by monitoring a lot of the stuff that's going on online and their channels and things like that, <clears throat> you know, they're blaming a lot of this on Israel or blaming it on the Jews. And there's a lot of scapegoating going on. Um, and when it's not them, it's the Chinese, you know. Um, so we're seeing a lot of scapegoating, a lot of finger pointing. And that on a, a large scale level, you know, they're pointing their fingers at the Chinese, at the Jews, you know, um, trying to drive wedges in between different aspects of our society, different aspects of American society where the racial and religious groups all want to fight with each other or or hate each other or point the fingers at one another. And it's causing a lot of uh, breakdown of our civil society here in America. And that's something that uh, 
we as a people, as a country, we all have to uh, get through that and uh, lift one another up and not not accuse and not finger point and start having better dialogue, better understanding and reaching out and helping whoever we can and accepting help from others if, if we need it. So, and I love that you brought that up because that leads me into my next question that we recognize obviously that there needs to be a change in our society and our culture in order to dissolve the, the lure of extremist ideologies and also to thwart how radicalized we're becoming as a country what needs to be done to weaken the ideology and what needs to be done to create resiliency in the individuals drawn to it, in your opinion? What what would really need to change? Because I feel like there's two steps. One is take what's happening right now in the paradigm of, of how people are becoming extremists and radicalized and how do you sort of dissolve that and how do you create resiliency? Well, I mean, to take away the, you know, to stop extremism, you don't, uh, stomp it out per se. You don't go after it with, uh, um, in my opinion, you don't go after it with violence and try to, you know, scream at them and say that they're wrong. But you take away their narratives. You prove what they're saying wrong. You um, show them that they are incorrect. Because you know, just uh, like, um, and this this could be applied to all different sorts of extremism. I mean, obviously. Uh, you know, I come out of the far right, so that's where I have the most knowledge. But I mean, with other forms of extremism, these same tactics work as well. Um, for example, with the, the far left, um, they have this idea, well, you know, punch a Nazi in the face and that's going to change things. I don't know anyone that has ever left a movement because they've been punched in the face mm-hmm. or because someone's threatened them. Or, or that sort of thing. I mean, if uh, you know, there's people that are that leave due to more extreme things. But um, the best way to get somebody to leave or change their way of thinking is not by violence, or it's not by punching somebody in the face, but it's by it's by showing them that they're wrong in a compassionate and empathetic way. You know, and sitting down with them, having dialogue, having discussion, and uh, breaking down those narratives and, and showing them that that. Uh, it's not correct rather than feeding into them so so i feel like reformers and and former extremists can lead a new paradigm and what jesse morton calls shifting the collective consciousness and toward what i would say radical empathy in a specific case like an individual who feels that the solution to hate and um, racism is to punch the nazi in the face how do you if you were sitting across the table from someone who believed that how do you deploy some of these tactics to change that narrative in the mind of someone who thinks punching a Nazi is the way to go? Well, I mean, those of us that were there, you know, have that experience. I can, I can, I could share with them my experience from it. And, uh, um, for example, any time that the organization would be out and we'd get into a big fight with the uh, communists and anarchists, um, it was like a morale booster. The guys would talk about it, sometimes talk about some of these fights for for years. They'd go, oh, why couldn't it be like, you know, the fight we had in New Jersey? Or why couldn't it be like this, you know? And, and I have one example that I use. Um, we did a rally. Uh, it was NSM and the Klan, and it was in, I believe it was in Tupelo, Mississippi. And there was literally no one there in the counter-protest section. And... Um, um, the groups <clears throat> that were there, they said this was the most boring rally ever. We were speaking to no one, 
it was um, demoralizing for the guys that were there because um, coming off of other rallies where there would actually be fist fighting and things like that, you know, that was exciting for, I'm not saying it's a good thing, I'm saying, but for for the guys in the movement, that, that was exciting to be in a battle and, and things like that. So when there was nobody there to shout you down or attack you or have a confrontation with you, it sort of took the wind out of their sails. So I think that says, that's just from years of experience at these type of things. Every time there was violence, our numbers skyrocketed. Everybody that, or a lot of the people that missed the event, you know, would call up or email or uh, text or whatever afterwards and say, I won't miss the next one because I, I missed out on this opportunity to punch some reds in the face, you know? So there was, there's that type of thinking. So if I was sitting across from somebody who was on the other side of that, you know, and I, I think that is, uh, just as extreme as, as the right. And I, I think that's another point. And I've actually taken some flack for talking about that, but when someone leaves, for example, one type of extremism and goes to another type of extremism, like a guy that goes from, say, the movement, the National Socialist Movement or the Klan or the skinheads, and then all of a sudden is on the far other extreme in violent parts. And I'm not saying all Antifa are violent because that's not true. It's not accurate. But like the very violent uh, uh, factions of the Antifa that are just as violent or or uh, and some maybe not as violent, but are equally violent in many ways as people in the movement, and in some cases more violent than some of the people in the movement. So um, you're trading in one form of extremism and going to another, you're still an extremist. So if you're flip-flopping from one, one extreme to another, you're still an extremist. What, what I think a lot of these people don't understand is that there is that gray area in the middle. You don't have to be far right you don't have to be far left most of us most of the world i think and most of us here want to be right in the middle of that you know we're not uh not necessarily physically in the middle of it but we want to be in a place that's more moderate you know we don't want to be on one extreme or the other and quite often when i'm working with people that are coming out of extremism that is the biggest question and the most common question i get literally from every single person that's contacted me since I left the movement over a year ago was if I leave this is, you know, them, the, the individual talking, if I leave, do I have to become a communist? Do I have to become an anarchist? And to the public, they're, they're thinking like, you gotta be kidding me. How could you think to leave the movement? You have to be an anarchist or a communist, or you have to be on your knees begging for apologies and, and begging for mercy from, from these people and that sort of thing, but they do think that. I thought it too. I thought it too before I left. And um, all of these people, and I've had emails and stuff from all over the world of people that are in the movement or thinking about leaving or uh, have left, they all, almost every single one of them asks that question. So they're, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, coming up with this out of thin air. And if it was two or three people, I'd say, oh, well, you know, they're just kind of, misguided but they all think that because they're thinking in the extreme they're thinking well i'm in this extreme movement and everybody that's against us everybody that's outside of that bubble or outside of that echo chamber is the enemy that's how we we were programmed to think you know i mean we were soldiers 
And this, you know, everyone else is in the world basically is against you. So that's how they think. So they think to leave it. And they've all asked me too, are you a communist? You know, and I'm not a communist or anything close to that. But so it's offensive almost now, but I have to remember and I have to bring myself back to that place where I was, where they're at, where you're just leaving or you're considering it or you're thinking about it and you wonder, do you have to go to the other extreme and have to continually remind people, no, you can be there in the middle. I've had people even that are out say, hey, if this comes down to it, and they're going to make me choose if I have to be an Antifa or I have to be in the movement, I'll go back to the movement. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say that. And I hold on now. Hold on. That's not the only choice. Most of us are here in the middle in this gray area. It's not the world is not black and white. You do not have to be on the far extreme left and you're not to be on the extreme far right. Most of us are in this gray area. Remember that, you know, and that's that's uh, so that's kind of unworking some of that stuff that's stuck in in their heads from all the years of indoctrination yeah i I love what you're saying because i feel like that gray area is is seen as sort of a negative space uh a lack of belonging a lack of identity another form of alienation whereas that gray area is an opportunity to create something new but when i look at this question of leaving one thing to join another thing which which is really interesting i haven't heard that before i do think of how much that framework is programmed and imprinted onto us in society from day one. It starts with, you're this religion, you're this ethnicity, you're part of this, you you follow this football team, you salute to this flag. I mean, all of these are forms of identity markers that we are taught we have to belong to something. And so when it comes to an extremist ideology, it would be very natural. I mean, I, I don't blame any of these guys or girls who say, oh, if I'm not this, and what am I? Because all we've been taught from day one is an association with something that's predefined and given to you as part of an a la carte menu of what are you going to choose to be, not what can I create on my own. And I, and I feel like that maybe goes back to the question I also asked about you know, how do we how do we move forward? And, and maybe one of the ways we move forward is by actively creating some kind of new paradigm when i hear when i hear what you're saying about soldiers and, and being part of a battle being part of the fight um you know remembering sort of the glory days it brings me to the theme that i keep coming across with a lot of different ideologies is this this trope of the hero the archetype of the hero or uh this desire to live in glory can you speak to that i mean how much how much of that is rings true? And also, do you think in some sense we've forgotten what it means to be hero or what does it really mean to be glory? And I have another I have another question for you that I'll just kind of pop in there as well. Because when I look at when I look at the story of a hero, right? Everyone knows of the story of a hero, like a five year old knows of the story of a hero. And we look at what it takes to be a hero. It takes an immense amount of discipline an immense amount of allegiance, uh, a, a loyalty, um, perseverance, you know, being outside of your comfort zone. So when we look at the hero appeal that extremists have and it being a reason they join a group, I feel like when it comes to neo-Nazis, the one thing that's really missing from that equation of, you know, what does it mean to be a hero is discipline. Because when we look at 
historically how some of these structures work. There was a lot of discipline. I've been following some of the uh, Telegram channels for neo-Nazis, and I see a lot of the memes of World War II uh, in Nazi Germany. What those guys had, and this is, again, I got to put it out there. I'm not advocating for it, but I'm noticing a discrepancy. What those guys had, and even with the, um, the sort of golden age of Islam, whether you were a jihadi, whether you were a scholar, no matter what you were, there was a, there was a level of stepping outside of your comfort zone and embracing discipline and embracing structure and sort of really moving the needle forward. And when I look at extremist ideologies today and the people who at large, for the most part, follow those ideologies, the thing that's missing is the discipline and the structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that um, <clears throat> you're absolutely correct on that. I mean, you really cannot compare... Um, and again, you know, I have to preface it by saying I'm not advocating right. for for that in any way, shape, or form. But it, it, uh, you know, if you're picking apart the uh, structurization of a lot of the people that are in in the far right um, compared to, say, National Socialist Germany, it's like night and day. I mean, um, but I think that a lot of that has to do with the uh, culture of today and uh, and and just the the way. People look at things, you know, I, I remember, um, I don't know how deep I want to get into that, that conversation, because I feel like if, um, in a, in a way that drawing people back into that or encouraging the discipline, um, at this point can make those groups a, a, a whole lot more, uh, dangerous if they did have, a uh, more structured, uh, more discipline and, and things like that. So I don't really want to, uh, um, give them any ideas yeah right. I, I i really i'm really hesitant to i'm really hesitant to uh explain that further and that might be something might want to edit out and i can explain that uh either now or after yeah explain recording. it now and then i'll edit it out okay well what <clears throat> my concern is um pointing out things like that uh, i mean i think it's I mean, you're absolutely correct. It doesn't, the movement today doesn't have anything like the discipline it had back in those days. Per Jeff's request, I went ahead and I cut that answer out of this final recording. Uh, But it is a testament to those who think that he is not truly reformed and hasn't left extremism and has done it for his own convenience. Uh, That's a testament to his his character because the answer was quite good and... um, to respect his his wishes, I won't be including it, and we'll get back to the rest of this interview. I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. What got you out? You 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 joined the party at age ten. What got you into it, and what got you out of it? No, I didn't join at age ten. Um, and my there there's different things on the internet. I don't know what's uh, uh, which one is uh, where that's coming from. I I found an interest in it. I found an interest in the movement. Since about that age, yes, and I what started. What interested uh, you? Yeah, and I started um, researching things. Um, a lot of that comes from my grandfather. Um, my grandfather fought in the Third Reich um, in the German army in the Wehrmacht. So um, it wasn't something that he was indoctrinating me with. In fact, my family tried uh, pretty diligently to to get me out of it a number of times over the years and discourage me from it, but I just wouldn't, uh, listen. But I think the fascination with it for me, like, I don't have a, uh, 
sad or abusive story or anything like that. I, I came from a good family, middle class, working class family. Both parents were in the home and I didn't have any traumatic stuff that happened to me um, or anything like that growing up. I had a very normal, good, decent family and um, that I just had this fascination with the, with the Third Reich ever since I can remember, ever since I was very young. What exactly drew you to it? I think, uh, well, I mean, part of it is I always looked up to my grandfather and I, I viewed him in, in a lot of ways as a, a brave and heroic uh, individual. And um, I always, uh, it's, it's tough to say. Like, I think um, that was the initial fascination with it. It was that, oh, he fought in this war and we saw lots of, even in elementary school, you saw, you heard things about World War II or, or um, they talked about it a little bit in the history books and stuff like that. And I just found this fascination with it from a very young age. And after that, like once I joined the movement, you know, then the real indoctrination uh, started taking place. And, and uh, I just, uh, I made sure when I joined, I first was, you know, back in those days, it wasn't email, but we were, I was writing all these different groups trying to find the closest thing to the Nazi, the German Nazi party. So that's why I ended up with the National Socialist Movement, because that was the group that was closest to the German National Socialists. How did you go from having a fascination with Nazi Germany and World War II and the Reich to adopting the ideas and being indoctrinated. How do you go from, oh, the uniforms are cool, oh, the, the boot stomps are cool, oh, you know, the tribal affiliation with this new sort of Nouveau party is great, to let's hate Jews. I mean, how do you make that jump? Right. Well, and that's, and that's something that, that comes once you get involved in the movement, I, I believe, because I certainly didn't grow up, you know, with any of that being shoved down my throat. So, I started with the fascination from it, and I got involved in it, and then I started heavily reading books, uh, Mein Kampf, The International Jew, um, different different uh, leaflets and things like that at the time, and, and became very you know anti-communist, and then um, the movement, uh, National Socialism was the natural enemy of communism, so... Um, that seemed like a natural fit there. So, um, and they use that to this day, you know, uh, uh, to, you know, that being part of the movement is patriotic. It's going to stomp out communism and communism is rising in different places. And, uh, that's one of the narratives that the movement uses. So it, um, what a lot of people don't understand about people that join the movement is you hear these different stories and sometimes, um, and everybody's story is different. I'm not saying that the stories are inaccurate because some people have had really rough or abusive lives and, and um, you know, have different reasons to be involved. But in my experience in leading in the movement for 25 years, um, you do have those people in the movement, but they are not the majority. The majority of the people are coming from, in my experience in ways, from just regular families, regular backgrounds anybody can be recruited into these type of extremist movements. You don't have to be somebody that was just raised in a single family household. 
or somebody that was abused or or hurt or things like that. You do have those people, but it's not the vast majority, I don't think, of the people involved in that. And anyone can be recruited into that type of ideology and, and become part of it. So um, coming from a normal background, a regular background, for me, I felt like, and this is a common theme amongst a lot of people there, is that we were doing something good, that this was an honorable thing. This was our patriotic duty. We were going to save our country. We were going to save our race. It was a positive thing. And when you, and once you're in that bubble, once you're in that echo chamber, you're feeling like you're on the defense. I think a lot of the public sees the movement as on the offense, that the movement's doing these bad things offensively, you know, to um, strike down other people or to hate others. When you're in the movement, you tell yourself, you believe this, that it's not about holding anybody else back or anything like that, that you're just strictly fighting for your people and your country and it's an honorable, noble thing. And you have that in your head. And that's, I mean, that's what kept me going for so many years. If I was there and it was just about hating somebody Mm -hmm. or holding somebody else down, I would have been out in six months. I would have been done. That sounds so much like Islamism to me. The idea that uh, a lot of folks who join up or who become Islamists, it's not that they sit there and go into a a back closet and swear allegiance to the Muslim Brotherhood. Most of them don't even know what it is. It starts with simple things like victimization or the sense of being oppressed, um, the sense mm-hmm. that you know you have to have your Muslim identity and it, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. And and then it starts with tokens like, oh, you have to, you know, dress this way or be with this kind of group or take up these politics. And then it goes into, well, we're being oppressed by the white man. We're being oppressed by uh, a certain government. And now we have to <coughs> come together as a clout and, and defend this um this faith or this identity when in reality the the philosophies that are developed are so far gone from what the thing that they say they are actually should be or, or actually is so there's a huge difference between the religion versus the politicization of the faith and i feel like that's it's very much what i'm hearing here absolutely the the parallels are so similar i think most people don't see it but um, studying both both aspects of that and, and seeing that there's so many parallels and there's so many similarities and you really have this sense of, of uh, it, it gives you the sense of purpose and you feel like you're doing something good and you're standing up for for this group. And I've seen it in other in other extremes, even when I was in the movement a number of years ago. I met with black organizations and I heard uh, some of the black organizations talking about how they were oppressed and that's why they were banding together. And, and um, you know, there was some similarities there, too, with some of the extreme black organizations. So it, this extremism isn't it's not just a white thing. It's just mm-hmm. that's that's where my expertise lies, because that's where I was for so long. But um, it does. Uh, it goes through to j- jihadism, uh, left wing extremism any kind of racial extremism and, and religion is it's really easy to uh, to latch onto and become extreme I mean there's extreme forms of Christianity as well and and um, any type of extremism can be uh, dangerous and, and cult-like if, if you allow it to be a lot of the 
race supremacists, the non-white race supremacists, would say that the American government is, is a majority white representative government. And my experience as, as a minority woman, as, as technically a brown-skinned woman, is that the the parties in power, it doesn't even matter which parties they are, it is obviously it's 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 more on one side than the other, but at large it's you know, they act like fraternity sororities and certain races tend to be uh, represented more than others. At the same time, I also feel it has less to do with race and more to do with economic power. Who has the money and who doesn't? Who has access and networks and who doesn't? So when we look at the actual, for example, the Trump administration now, when we look at the actual representation of what race makes up the cabinet, what race makes up you know, the the presidency itself, that's a white race. How can mm-hmm. race supremacists in the Nazi party, the neo-Nazi party, sit there and say that their race is being oppressed or wiped out when clearly, when we look at just shades of skin, that group is in power? Right, right. That's a good point. That's a really good point. And I, and I do see and I understand, um, you know, everything from a minority perspective, especially, um, uh, probably bet now better than, than the average person, um, unfortunately, because of the experience I had in the extremist movement and understanding the mindset and understanding why people get there and how they get there. Um, and, um, but the movement's response to that, if that's what you're asking, the mm-hmm. movement's response to that would be those were white traders and Jews. That's, that's what they would say. Um, everything really typically everything goes back to this vast Jewish conspiracy that the (laughs) Jews are behind everything, literally. Like, I mean, now being out and everything, it's almost like an ongoing joke where like if if someone, you could spill a glass of milk in your house and oh, it's the Jews, but that's how, which obviously is ridiculous, right? But that's how people in the movement, and it's not quite that bad, but that's not a really big over exaggeration like literally the jews are behind everything yeah that's how they view that's how i viewed it for so long as well and, it, and it's uh um even when i got out the last thing for me to be able to that i had to work on on myself was the anti-semitism explain I mean, that, that to me. was that was really tight explain that to me what is that like how did you have to work on that is is understanding all those years Okay, all those years being involved in that movement where literally the Jews were behind everything, um, that was the hardest thing to sort of undo in the mind was to was to understand that it is not that way. It's exactly what what you had basically said is that it's an economic it's an economic thing. It's the it's the rich that are in a lot of ways controlling different different aspects of society and it's privilege and it's like, you know, what a lot of people call the good old boys club mm-hmm. or, or things like that. It's either you get in or you don't. And it's usually because you have a, a name or you have money or you have some sort of uh, power and has really has nothing to do with if you're white or Jewish or black or brown or, or Asian or anything else. It's, it's really privilege is what it comes down mm-hmm. to. And uh, a lot of times class war rather than um, than racial by any means. How did you unwork those knots? I mean, what did you did you have to 
consciously be aware of your thoughts. And, and I ask you this because it, it's it's hilarious in a very <clears throat> not funny way that the the sort of Nazi view worldview when it comes to Jews is exactly the same as Islamists. Uh, I mean, it is. and I have yep. you know I can't go. I can't go um, with one sort of day of like family exchange with somebody like in a text message where the common Jew joke isn't made. I mean, it's so ingrained in the way that the, in the way that they carry themselves and they don't realize how damaging that is. And so obviously when that blueprint is there, when the next person comes along, you know, when there's when there's a skirf, a skirf, uh, a, some sort of um, skirmish at temple mount then the next person that comes along who's an imam who says something it's readily bought into because they've been sort of feeding into that language this entire time i would say that and if i can speak from my experience really quickly is i never grew up though i've been surrounded that with that rhetoric i didn't specifically grow up adopting it in part because of a lot of different experiences i had as a kid moving around a lot whatnot what i did realize is that in, I want to say, 2016 or so, I realized that while I had studied a lot of different religions, I hadn't studied Judaism. And I started having experiences with, you know, really great friendships, uh, working with really great organizations that just led me to realize that this was one faith that I hadn't really opened up to or studied. And I wondered why. And I realized it's because as much as I'm, I'm not an anti-Semite and I don't hate Jews, that sort of resistance to understanding that group of people was was deeply ingrained even in someone like myself who's very who's very obviously tolerant and that led me to the idea that it's not enough to be tolerant there needs to be a level of intimacy um that what does it mean to go from just tolerating something to being very intimate with it and that was a game changer for me and i wonder what your experience was when when you're really just deprogramming yourself coming out of the party Right. Well, <clears throat> you know, like the racial, the racial aspect of it, I had had deprogrammed a couple of years before while I was still in the movement. So I was, in my mind, I was trying to, and, and what you can see by the timeline of the NSM, what I was doing in 2016, we changed from the swastika to the Odo rune. And I started telling the public and, and uh, the press and everybody else, this is a white civil rights organization. Now, that sounds mm. funny, but as I was de-radicalizing myself during this time period, um, around around then, it seemed very rational to me. Like, oh well, National Socialist Movement could be a white civil rights organization. You know, I could I can make it this way. You know, because it, it wasn't based like on democracy. It was more like a dictatorship, as far as the structure of the organization goes. So what I what I was saying would go. So I thought that was as I was de-radicalizing at that point and not, I still had the anti-Semitism very strongly, but the racism for other races and other people had, was, was pretty much gone at that point. So I was trying to change things around. Now, looking back after I got out um, and I went through what I call the decompression period, I'd said to myself, what the heck were you thinking? How could you make the Nazi party into a civil rights organization? It seems hilarious now. You know, but <clears throat> at the time when I was deeply embedded in this group, it seemed rational, which, of course, it wasn't rational. But at the time, it seemed like it. 
Um, so as I was going through my own de-radicalization process, I was trying to project it into the organization. And you can't make the Nazi Party into a, a civil rights organization. That's not realistic. But um, I thought I could. And that's what I was doing at the time. But when I finally got out, um, and the reasons I got out were, are many. You know, there's not one aha reason, but there's quite a few different reasons. And little seeds were planted along the way. I met some pretty incredible people. Um, and that's why I'm such a big fan of dialogue and understanding and sitting down with people and um, trying to figure out things. Because even though, you know, I'd sat down with people over the years before, when you're in the movement, you put up like this blockade in your mind where you're, you block out other people's feelings, you block out empathy, you block out um, anything that uh, if you hear a sad story from someone, for example, I met Daryl Davis, it was 2015 or 2016, and he, um, he's a, a black activist that goes and, and uh, de-radicalizes uh, Klansmen. He's, he's de-radicalized about 200 Klansmen by himself, and um, he's a professional musician. He played with Chuck Berry. Um, he's an incredible piano player and, and uh, a friend of mine now to this day. Um, and Daryl had told me a story about when he was a Boy Scout and about seven or eight years old and he was in the Boy Scout parade and people were throwing rocks at him and he thought they didn't like the Boy Scouts. He didn't realize they were doing this because he was black. And he said, you know, I don't understand how they can't like me when they don't know me. And it's like little simple things like that. At the time he was filming for accidental courtesy, which was, uh, a documentary that was done on him and his life and, and things like that. And I'm, I'm just in there for a few seconds, but um, I remember him telling me that story and then just boom um, onto something else. But it stuck in the back of my head, like, whoa, I, I don't, how, how could I, how can I be part of that doing something like that, hurting this person this good person, this good, nice, decent, honorable person, but I still blocked it out. I was still blocking it out at that time, but he planted a seed. And then when I had met um, <clears throat> actually a filmmaker, her name's Dia Khan, and she did the film White Right, and that was based on the movement, and I was one of the main characters in that one. Um, it was called White Right Meeting the Enemy, and Dia Khan was a Muslim woman, and uh, uh, her and I are good friends to this day, but she had a really profound effect on me because we had become friends during the time of the filming and toward, and this is actually in the film, but um, she's sitting across from me and she's explaining to me, she was like, you know, as a child, as a little girl, organizations like you were a part of, like you are a part of, um, made me feel less and i'm not quoting her verbatim because I, I don't remember the exact words but this is the generalized version of it was that it made me hate myself it made me feel like less than a person it made me feel ugly you know and she's sitting across from me looking at me and i can feel her pain i can i can see it i can feel it and usually in the movement we had like a, a mental barrier a barrier that was put up for stuff like that. When you heard those kind of things, you didn't let it touch your humanity. You didn't let it 
bother you. You didn't let it get to you. How and her you... cameraman caught it and like zoomed into my eyes and you could see how much it bothered me in the film. Mm-hmm. So some people, since I've been out, they said, we knew you were coming out because we knew you were leaving because we could see it. She got to you. And um, that's a true story, and it's 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 pretty incredible. And that friendship uh, is, is she's like a sister to me. How do you put up a barrier? Because the one thing that changes people, and and I'm a huge advocate of the idea that anyone can change at any time. It usually is a series of seeds. It's it's very rarely one you know magnanimous moment, but it's 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 a series of seeds and breadcrumbs. But what it takes is experiencing something, which is why I'm such a huge advocate of the arts, theater, film, music, dialogue, because that's experience. It's something that you can't, you can't gain from you know, picking up a book and reading a book, but you have to experience it. So how, mm-hmm. do you, how do you develop resistance to that? You said you mentioned um, having a wall built up or you had a wall up against that. How do you block your humanity off like that? You condition yourself in a lot of ways. I mean, the movement does it too. And, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, you talk about how the movement does this and that, but you were leading it, you know? So, you know, right. you know, but it was like, so I was doing a lot of this to myself, just like in a lot of ways I de-radicalized myself, but as what we would, how we would target the people that were in it and how we would condition them is we would constantly bombard them with news of, of terrible things like for example uh some of the genocide that's going on in south africa like we would hammer on that and grab all this news from south africa video clips of like um i could think of one where there was a a white guy being stripped of all his clothes in the street and and beaten to death with traffic driving driving by and i mean it's just one of the most savage videos i think i've ever seen in my life it was just horrific and um we would send that around to everybody and say, look, this is what's going to happen. This this could be you. This could be your dad. This could be your mother. This could be your son, your daughter. You know, this is what's going to happen if the race war breaks out in this country. Um, this is what's coming, you know, and it, it would, you would instill this fear. So it became very tribal in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um it was us against the world mentality. If you were not part of the movement, um, you were the enemy. And you were potentially, if you were one of these people in the United States government, who the movement views as Zog, the Zionist occupational government, you were the enemy. You were, you were. Uh, it didn't matter even what skin color you were. Um, in fact, in some ways, those whites were considered even worse because the rest of the people were like, puppets or slaves to the system. So, but um, quite often the way the movement saw it was like the system was like a cancer and the other races were symptoms of that cancer. And at the top was a puppet master pulling the strings, who of course was the Jew. So it was all at the behest of the Jew as far as the movement is concerned. And that's how how you would... (coughs) You would get that barrier up because you would be so desensitized to anything else in that way that it was like it's us versus them. So even when you'd hear a a, a story like what happened to Daryl or um, how Dia felt, 
and these sort of things. Sometimes, and you, I'd hear people in the movement say different things like that. Well, I know this guy, and uh, he's a good one. You know, like he's a good one of them. Mm. Um, but there's not very many of those. Like he's a, you would justify it. You'd figure out any way you could justify it. Like if you met a family or something that was of another race or, or something like that, you go, well, I know this Mexican family. They're good, but 99% of them are bad. I hear that about you know, Muslims would... all the time. Oh, mm-hmm. I have, I have, a, I have two Muslim friends. I'm not a racist or I'm not a bigot. Uh, that that is so common when you're talking about the stories that you were that you sort of had up it seems like your wall was actually a narrative uh, layers of different narratives the, the videos from South Africa for example and what pierced through that was a more powerful narrative but not just another video from another part of the world but sitting across face to face from Dia and seeing and seeing her pain. So really not just hearing mm-hmm. the story, but experiencing it, meeting Daryl. So it would be what what challenged one story was an even more powerful story that was layered with experience from the sounds of it. You were met with a lot of skepticism when you renounced the National Socialist Movement. And mm-hmm. and I don't want to get into that too much because, because end of the day, that is sort of... <clears throat> I feel like that's a a symptom of the system that we're living in, that there isn't a lot of trust, there's a lot of skepticism. But I want to talk about how it felt to be questioned, to have your journey put under a microscope, and how that scrutiny might influence or discourage other extremists who are thinking about walking away from their ideologies, because that's a hard thing to experience. It's one Mm -hmm. thing to say, okay, I'm not part of this, I'm leaving, and, and some people, you know, don't like you for it or don't trust you for it, but to have your to have your journey questioned, which and, and please correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm assuming too much, I feel like that's still such a new thing for you that you're still experiencing it. So it's a very fragile pathway because it's so real for you still. And then to have that questioned is is scarring in a whole different way. How does that make you feel? And, and more importantly, how do you think that that really influences or might discourage other people who are thinking about leaving? I'm so glad you asked that question because I haven't been asked that a lot as far as in the interviews and things like that. I have, I have a few times in, in some speeches and things like that, but, um, it's a question that I think really, really is, uh, it's important and it's, I'm glad you asked it because, um, that, that right there is probably as difficult of a decision. It took me, it took me a couple years, two, three years before, I could even leave the movement. Mm. And then it was some of the things that were going on, you know, it was some of the people that touched my lives. Those were some of the good things, but it was also like some of the final straws for me were seeing some of the violence that was starting to happen. Even though, you know, in the movement, we'd say, well, at least it wasn't an NSM member. At least it wasn't one of our guys. You know, we'd say things like that to justify some of this stuff. Um, but when I, when I was wanting to leave and I started seeing some of those things pop off, I knew more was coming. I knew more was coming. I knew there would be people that would call them martyrs that would, uh, uh, you know, they're even calling them saints and things like that and trying to accelerate things and, you know, make things worse. So I felt like right then and there, um, when I left, I, I left as a retirement 
I already knew I was going to speak out against it, that I was going to do that, but I wasn't ready immediately. I needed to do what I called the decompression period where I needed to kind of evaluate my life and all that sort of thing. And for me, being a national leader of the party, it was a little um, different in a was a lot different, I guess. I mean, everyone's journey to leave is difficult. But for me, my finances, my business, everything was tied into it was tied into this my whole entire life. Just about everybody I knew um, was somehow tied into it. All the um, profits and things from my business, I was reinvesting back into it and and uh, uh, things like that. And my business was NSM Records, you know, was selling movement shirts and CDs and things like that. So um, I had to take all these things into consideration. Okay, so I'm going to leave the movement. I'm going to leave everything behind. I've been so open, so vocal, so the face of the, of the NSM um, in all these different documentaries over the years and hundreds and hundreds of news clips and things like that. Like this is what I did my whole entire life. So when I was in the decompression period um, where I was trying to, you know, gather my thoughts and, and all that, and I had just left the movement as a retirement, which is the movement sees retirement as okay. They're sort of like, okay, well, he retired. But some of the guys, even in the group, didn't believe it. So the few people I was still talking with, um, some of them would call me up and say, oh, well, you're done with your vacation. You know, we need you to come back. You know, you're done, you know, come back out of retirement. We need you to come back. Um, and I said, no, I'm done. I'm done with the movement. I'm not coming back. And they would say things like, what are you going to do? What are you going to what are you going to put on your job application? Commander of the Nazi party for 25 years. You know, <laughs> this is this is you. This is who you are. This is all you've ever been. This is who you are. This defines you. And these were some of the fears, I don't like the word fear, but these were some of the concerns that I had in my own head at the time when I was trying to figure things out that yes, lots of society won't want me to leave and that they will see me as that person, just like the people in the group that I had known were saying to me, like, this is how they will see you. They will never uh, forgive what you've done. They've never, they'll never accept you back. Society doesn't want you back. And <clears throat> that's how you're designed to stay in that bubble or to stay trapped in that movement. So, um, to answer your question, I mean, it was an incredibly, incredibly difficult thing for me to do. Not because, not because, um, I didn't want to, I had been wanting to leave for several years, but I had all these other concerns, and this doesn't make it right. It's not an excuse. I'm not making an excuse for myself. But it's I should life. have left before, it's, but it's it, all it's these complications, you know. Yeah, it, it's the same, you know, it's the same thing when when people ask me why aren't more Muslims speaking out, even though they're not extremists, they're not Islamists. A lot of the times, it's not even though they're not extremists, and there's no ideological affiliation. Just for speaking out, you're risking your livelihood. You're risking your your tribe, your group, and so it's not as easy as just oh, let me switch on a switch and switch off a switch. This is, it's very connected to your entire life, and that's and that's a very real thing. And you have, and I think you have a right to ask those questions because end of the day, 
you're a human being and, and the ideals are great, but you also need to worry about how you're going to live day to day. That's going to be on you. And I, and I think talking about that is so important because, you know, we can't romanticize this as, oh, I left and now I'm this. But there, there were a lot of sort of uh, cans attached to strings attached to you dragged along the way that you had to sort of figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very complicated. So when so when you're in that process and, and um, there's people, you know, there's people that I'm working with, some of them have left, some, you know, some left before I did, some left when I did, and some are in the process of leaving now and some are on the fence, you know, they're like in the movement, but they're asking questions. Mm-hmm. So I leave that door open, you know, because I feel like if they're asking questions, it's a good thing they might be open to coming out. But the questions they're asking and what they're seeing and um, is <clears throat> some of the, you know, so uh, back to your, your question, it's, there's a lot of parts to it, so I'm probably going to bounce around yeah, a little no, bit on it, it. But the, it's so complex because there's so many different facets of that for different people. But for my own story, like, yes, I mean, of course, I try to put myself in other people's shoes. So if I'm on the other side and I say, okay, well, Jeff Scoop is left movement after 27 years, this is a bunch of crap. You know, I don't believe it. But, you know, and when they say things like that or they say it's not real or things like that, the first reaction, the first natural reaction that you want to give or that you want to say is like, you know, you want to grab the person and shake them and go, are you kidding me? Like speaking out against the movement, especially from the level of the movement where I was, is to them, to people in the movement, it's like the ultimate treason. They don't see, you know, I'm I'm a peace ad- advocate, you know, I'm a civil rights advocate, and I advocate for peace between all people now. So I see it as a good, noble, and honorable thing. But And some people in the movement maybe see it that way, but the vast majority see it as being a traitor to the white race like they see it as something terrible like up there with the with the jewish guy pulling the strings that's how bad Mm -hmm. that's how bad they see me so when there's people some of them so when there's people out there from society going oh he doesn't deserve a chance or he's still a nazi there's actually people that still say i'm a nazi you know and things like that it's really hurtful and it's damaging because it's like, you know, you want to say, do you realize I'm literally risking my life to do this? I could do something else. Yeah. You know, I know business, you know, there's different things I could be doing rather than speaking out, but I'm speaking out because it's the right thing to do. And it's because I feel like I owe this to society to, to undo some of the damage that I've done to fix things. So I'm, no one's making me do it. No one's standing over me saying, you better get out there and apologize, Jeff. No one's done that. No one's and, – and that's important I think too because I was talking with another former about that. And he goes, you know, he goes – this is a guy that's been out for some years. And he says, no one's ever asked me to apologize. And I said the same thing. I said, you're right. No one's asked me to apologize either. I said, I have apologized for some of the things that I've done. I said, but no one's told me. I need to do that. And what, why that seems so fascinating to us is because when we're in the movement, that's how you see it. You see the other people that are out that are formers or this sort of thing. You're saying, Oh, 
somebody's making them do that. Someone's made them do that. Or, or um, you know, that's the narrative that you have in your head that something's someone's making them do it, you know, for whatever reason. And um, it's important that they understand that it's, that's not the way it is. But um, the complications come when you have and it's damaging when you have people out there that don't believe a former, whether you've walked away from uh, far right extremism, from jihadism, from a gang um, anything or cult or anything like that. It's so damaging, I think, because there's people in the movement that are watching um, and they're watching like what the formers and what some of us out here are doing. And when they see, hey, look, Jeff, people are still calling you a Nazi. We told you so. We told you so, you know, and it's almost like there's certain elements of society that wish it to be so and for them you know i mean it doesn't matter what anybody does to me i'm really bullheaded and headstrong this is my mission now i'm trying to uh peace build and do good things what i should have been doing all along um so they're not going to push me out of it but a lot of people that are more fragile or that are more you know on that fence where they're not quite sure what you know what's the right path for them when they see that people are not being accepted back into society, it drives them back into the bubble. I love that you mentioned what I call the silent audience, because when I look at reform, right, and not to say that the two things are equal, but there's a lot of similar patterns and and overlaps between the two. So when I look at reform and I look at some of the the challenging positions we take or the subjects we, we take on, and I look at the response that we get from from both sides, uh, people who who supposedly would align with us and the people who are obviously against us the the audience that i always have in mind are the folks that are watching because there's a lot of people out there there's there's a few of you there's a few of me but there are so many more on the sidelines watching to see how pioneers really you know what you're doing what reformers are doing what other former extremists are doing this is all when they were coming out and we're speaking out about these things, this is all very new territory. And there's so many people watching how how it's gonna go down because it takes an incredible amount of resolve and sacrifice, like you were seeking to your, your livelihood. Um, it, it, there's so many things involved in just being able to do this. And if we don't set a pattern where not only are we leading as, as, as leaders with integrity, but we are making sure that the the pathway is is insulated or paved so that it's not as bumpy for the next person. I think that is so critical at this hour, and a lot of people overlook that aspect of it. Is it's not just about you know the ten of you and five of me, but it's about the five hundred thousand that are waiting to sort of follow this path next and maybe even build on it in their own way. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and that's what's what's so important. And I don't think. Most people see that. I don't think that they realize that the harm that they're doing when they, when they do those uh, sorts of things. And um, and I say this sometimes too. And and I, and I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around it. But um, I've heard people say like, you know, just about my own story, like, oh, maybe this is just easier for you. Are you? Oh, I, that's that's the one that sets me <laughs> off more than anything. I think to myself, I was running the NSM for 25 years. I had my own business. I had money back then. You know, it's like I had everything was set. I woke up every day and it was like, oh, this is who I am. I run the NSM. 
I have this business, life is pretty easy, you know, in that sense. So when I say I say to people like, for me, it would have been easier to stay leading the movement than doing this. This is so much more challenging in, in every single way and so much more difficult. And um, it's just, it's un- unbelievable, but it's the right thing. It's the right thing. It's not the easy path, but it was the right path. So sometimes when people question that, it, it is it is hurtful and it is upsetting and stuff like that. And um, like when we talked about a little bit earlier about the barriers that people put up, and this is one thing I've noticed since I've been out and speaking out <clears throat> in the movement, if we talked about feelings and and all this kind of stuff, that was viewed quite often as weakness. Mm-hmm. Whether people would say it or not, it was one thing, but it was viewed as weakness. If you were considered a weak leader, you had to watch out for people in your own organization that might be coming for you um, or people from competing groups, you know, if there was any signs of weakness or things like that. Um, being out on this side of things, you're talking about feelings, you're talking about um, uh, you know, more intimate type of things. For me, that's more challenging than anything, even even um, because all of that stuff, uh, when you were in the movement, it was like blocked. That was behind that barrier. So um, very, very difficult to to be in a place like a synagogue and and tell and tell everybody who you are or who you were before. Yeah. I mean, that's that's incredibly difficult. So the easy path would have been to stay in the movement, but it wasn't the right path. I think there's an incredible amount of grace and beauty in in former extremists because the rhetoric of of peace and the rhetoric of feelings and whatnot, it's it's so much more tangible in a way for for your group simply because of the, the hard lives that former extremists have led. I mean, you, yourself, uh, other folks, uh, you know, Jesse Morton, etc. you guys have had really hard personalities, hard lives. And to go from that to a place of sensitivity is, I, I think that's really inspiring in an age where masculinity is seen as, as being only one thing. I think that's a very inspiring message. I have a closing question for you. What does peace mean to you? Oh boy, you're going to have a second show here with the answer <laughs> to that. <laughs> um, peace, I mean, peace can be so many different things. Inner peace is, is one thing, and having that inner peace, not having to um, uh, battle uh, demons and fight the world and all that sort of thing, that's peace. Like, I, I would say, in a lot of ways, um, I explained uh, being in the movement. You know, we were soldiers there. So leaving leaving that behind um, and not being at war with the world and everybody around you um, brings some inner peace. But um, so that's the, the inward um, version of, of the peace. But outwardly peace would be I'd like to see peace between all the different peoples of the world, peace between, uh, you know, not this divisiveness and polarization between the political parties and the hatred between different countries of the world and the different races. Um, I think what we're seeing right now, too, with the pandemic that we're dealing with is, as I said um, previously, some of the best and the worst of humanity is coming out in different ways. And I I think um, the message I'd really like to resonate with people is that for true peace, you know, that we have to uplift one another. 
we have to see this as a fight for all of humanity, not just white people, not just Asian people, not just black people or, or religious groups, Muslims, Christians, Jews, but as a whole of humanity, like, um, uh, people would sometimes say like, what would happen if aliens attacked the earth or something? I'm just being a little philosophical mm-hmm. here, but if aliens attacked the earth, all the people of the earth would get together and fight the aliens to defend the earth, you know? So, so, you know, if we see this pandemic or this, this, um, virus, instead of it being something where we point the fingers and say, this is a Chinese problem or the Jews are behind this or the government's behind this and use it as a reason to unite as a people, as humanity, as a whole, despite religion, despite race, despite all these things and just see everyone as our fellow man and and woman and unite. I mean, that to me, that would be, you know, use this terrible time that we're facing right now and, and turn it into something incredible and, um, and remember it and then go forward. I think it might be possible with the uh, line that necessity is the, the mother of invention. I think we're at a point now where we don't have the comfort of, of sort of continuing to ignore things. I think with the coronavirus, if we can just close up with that is it's been such an equalizer and experience in the sense that I can't think of one person who's not impacted or aware Whereas when we're dealing with our niche interests, um, only a very small percentage of people know about that issue. Whereas this has brought everyone together in, in that in that one arena where now we have to sort of realize, okay, we're going to do something about it. We have to do something about it. And we're all literally in it together for the most part. So I'm very hopeful that your interpretation of peace might actually be something that we start to be something that we can achieve in this in this next generation. And I think if people see it, if they see it in that way, if someone that has been in, involved in extremism on one form of the spectrum or another and can, and can see these, these truths you know, or see these different facets of the world, and I think the reason why we can see those is because being part of something that was so extreme and so um, one-sided – um, where you just didn't allow yourself to see those things, you know, it's sort of like the blind person that all of a sudden has their vision again, mm-hmm. you know, now their vision's sharp. They appreciate all the colors more. They appreciate all those things around them even more than, than before. And I think because of, um, and this is getting a little philosophical again, but I think because of some of those emotions had been shut off and that humanity and that empathy and all those things were shut off for so long, that now um, some of us that were in those extremist circles, that we feel all these things a lot stronger and a lot deeper and that we have uh, a bit of wisdom. I think that the average person uh, that's, that's out there that's part of the polarization process doesn't see. So if we can offer some bits of that wisdom and that knowledge or the, and that experience so people don't ever have to, to tread those same paths, it's not a good path, it's not a happy path, it's not a good way to live. It's not good for you and it's not good for your neighbor. It's not good for humanity. It's not good for the world. So if we can teach and and um, help others with that and they can open their minds and see that that message, maybe we can save a lot of other people from um, faltering down those same paths. I think that's a really beautiful note. Um, Jeff, thank you. And we're going to end on that very, very powerful note that I, that I definitely plan on sharing elsewhere. I'm doing a, a follow-up 
write up in response to this entire current crisis and talking about how formers can really lead on this as building a new paradigm. I think you guys are an incredibly untapped resource for issues beyond just dealing with extremism, but but really the broad scale sort of breakdown of of uh, the human experience right now. Because I think as as much as the floodgate has opened for for you and for other formers. Uh, I feel like a lot of the rest of society is is getting very comfortable shutting things off emotionally. Jeff, thank yeah. you. We'll have Sorry. you on again. Okay. So, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you for staying up so late. Now I'll speak to you again. Thanks again. Take care, Shereen. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye.